Welcome back to the podcast. This week, the darkness before the dawn, soul care in the medieval church. So we're talking roughly the 5th to 15th centuries. That's about a thousand years. We've come to what we call the Middle Ages. I'd like to set the scene, if I may, by reading a passage that's as accurate as it is eloquent in describing this period of the history in the West. We frequently speak of this, of course, as the Dark Ages. And so we need help in shedding light in what is a rather murky period in our own memories and history. So this uh, passage comes from the pen of Morton Hunt, who we've quoted today from his book, The Story of Psychology. He writes the following, quote, Mighty Rome was repeatedly ravaged and sacked. Its people gradually crept away to country towns and fortified villages until by the 6th century, only 50,000 people were living amid the burned ruins and rubble of the once great city. Its libraries and those of other cities were scattered and destroyed. The scientific learning of the past, along with hygiene, manners, and art, was lost. Most of Western European society came to comprise primitive villages, drafty castles, and walled towns, loosely organized in petty fiefdoms and kingdoms whose illiterate leaders constantly raided and laid siege to one another when not joining forces to fight against invading enemies, end quote. Can you picture it? This is a pretty awful time to be alive. Uh, now, if you're a Christian, at least you're not being fed to the lions for sport or ignited on fire as a torch for evening lighting. Uh, so there was suffering, but just a different type. It was almost like humanity and the, the church and the culture alike reverted to a state of second childhood. A childhood and an adolescence that lasted upwards of a thousand years. So much so that it stood in need of a renaissance, a rebirth, which did occur at the end of the Middle Ages. And we'll, we'll talk about that moment in history in the podcast to follow. But for the rest of this podcast and on into the next one, we are in the Dark Ages, the medieval period, the darkness before the dawn. Now, there were some bright spots. There was an effort to, made, uh, modest as it was, at conducting the care and the cure of souls. So let's begin roughly a hundred years after the fall of Rome with our first luminary, St. Benedict of Nursia. Benedict was born in Italy in the year 480. A son of nobility, he rose to a position of great influence in the early Middle Ages. In fact, the entire first third of the medieval period is sometimes known as the Benedictine centuries. Note to self, when they name a whole cluster of centuries after you, uh, you've made your mark. <laughs> uh, he created what became known as the rule of Benedict, or a pattern, a daily life guide for use in the monasteries among the medieval monks. His influence really was one of the bright spots in the Dark Ages. As it relates to the care of souls, I'd like to flag one aspect of Benedict's rule known as the 12-step ladder of humility the 12-step ladder of humility, not to be confused with another 12 steps that we have come to know in the world of addiction recovery over the last century. Uh, the 12 steps, these 12 steps, um, the ones that we're familiar with, were published in 1939. Um, these 12 steps that we're going to talk about now were published in 529, okay? A little earlier. So do you struggle with pride, 
Do you want to grow downward in humility? Hi, my name is Dave. Hi, Dave. <laughs> and I'm a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. Can you imagine a meeting like that? A 12 step meeting of humility? Well, if that's you, Benedict has a 12 step program for you 12 means of grace for you to slay the dragon of pride. You ready? These are right from Benedict's pen. Number one, constantly fear God, remembering that hell awaits those who hold God in contempt and heaven for those who fear him and that all human actions are reported hourly to God by angels. Number two, love neither your own will nor delight in your own desires. Number three, submit in total obedience to your superior. Number four, endure in silent patience all obstacles, even injuries, that beset your path. Number five, hide neither your evil thoughts nor your secret sins, but in humble confession reveal them to your mentor. Number six, be content with lowliness and regard yourself as bad and worthless a worker in all that you are assigned to do. Number seven, not only acknowledge yourself inferior to all others, but believe it in the depths of your heart. Number eight, do nothing unless authorized either by monastic rule or by the example of your superiors. Number nine, keep silence until asked a question. Number 10, never be easy or quick to laugh. Number 11, speak gently without laughter, humbly and gravely in a few reasonable words. Number 12, exhibit your lowliness to all who see you in all your deeds. Now, perhaps you're thinking at this point, well, that sounds awfully legalistic to me. And you may be right. Uh, there were 12 steps and nowhere in the 12, unless I'm mistaken, does Benedict explicitly articulate the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, it's true that some of these, if not most of these steps, are evidences of grace in our lives. Now, I would also say that he gets humility wrong in a number of places. When he says, uh, speak without laughter, speak without um, humor, uh, those things actually uh, rightly conceived are evidences of great humility. Uh, proud people don't laugh at themselves very well. Um, but as many of us who struggle with pride, uh, just about any tool would be helpful to cultivate humility as, as a welcome utensil, a happy implement in our sanctification, right? Of course that's true. Um, if we're critical of Benedict's 12-step ladder of humility, uh, this much is certain. Um, I like Benedict's way of doing it better than my way of not doing it. Okay, so you say, well, this is work in counseling. And my answer would be, I, I think it might have a place in counseling or something like this. You see, counselees, um, your suffering and sinning family and friends, you yourself, um, we need help. And folks are looking for nifty, brief, pithy, practical help. And 12 steps? Well, you tell me. Have 12-step programs been implemented successfully in our culture? <laughs> like a hand in glove. So while we might quibble about a step or two on Benedict's ladder, uh, that is the purpose of Benedict's 12-step ladder of humility. It was implemented uh, among monks living in uh, orders together, and it was uh, memorable, and it was wildly popular, 
and to a large degree, um, beneficial to those who took it seriously. I, I commend Benedict and his rule for your consideration. Now, where did Benedict get these 12? Well, Benedict, as we do, stood on the shoulders of others. In this case, he was standing on the broad shoulders of John Cassian, who I wish we had time to consider because Cassian is so wonderful in his own right, so wonderful in many ways. But we'll bypass Cassian except to say this. Cassian died at the same time as Augustine and Chrysostom, roughly 430, right around the fall of Rome. So Benedict is born about 50 years later. And without Cassian's work, you don't have Benedict because it was Cassian who first developed a 10-step ladder of humility. That was a part of his monastic rule. Okay, so where did Cassian get his list? Ah, you see, Cassian was mentored by a man named Evagrius of Pontus. And Evagrius, who died in 399, is the one who, after 17 years of serving in the same monastery, began to notice that the same basic root-level temptations and sins were common to all men in his order. These included gluttony, impurity, avarice, which is another word for greed, sadness, anger, acedia, which is another word for sloth, vainglory, and pride. Now, if you're keeping track, that's eight. What's that beginning to sound like to you, that list? Yes, it's, it's the seven deadly sins. Well, they don't reach the number of seven until we get to Gregory the Great. And guess what? Uh, he's, he's next in our study here. Who is Gregory the Great? What made him so great? Well, Chrysostom is our preacher. Augustine is our theologian. So Gregory? Gregory is our pastor. And since he is a pastor, he's also a counselor. These weren't separate endeavors 1,500 years ago. They were one calling. In fact, if you'll recall from our study in a previous podcast, that Sigmund Freud, of all people, who is an atheist, believed his work to be religious, that is, pastoral. That's actually his word. I'll quote uh, Heath Lambert again, who says uh, in his book, The Biblical Counseling Movement After Adams, quote, in his work, The Question of Lay Analysis, Freud argued for a class of, quote-unquote, secular pastoral workers. Now, that's Freud's phrase, secular pastoral workers, with the goal of secularizing the counseling task. The term counseling was not in vogue in Freud's day, so amazingly, he described the task of helping people as a pastoral task. In this book, The Question of Lay Analysis, Freud makes clear that his task was to remove counseling from the ministerial context and to place it in the secular one, end quote. Well, friends, Freud achieved his aim and then some. We are still reaping the whirlwind of Freud. He died over 80 years ago, and yet he still speaks and influences even as those uh, who are loath to claim him. It's actually fashionable to dismiss Freud in secular psychological circles today, but no one dismisses him in this respect. Counseling is not to be seriously done by pastors, uh, rank and file types types of folk. The, the secular pastorate now has the field. Well, not so in the days of Gregory the Great. In Gregory's day, <clears throat> the church had the field, and Gregory was the all-star quarterback. 
Gregory wrote a book called His Pastoral Rule that stood for a thousand years as the go-to resource as it relates to the care and cure of souls. It's still published today. I've actually got it on my iPhone Kindle. Uh, Here's what Gregory said about how to approach the counseling task. Listen to this. This quote is thrilling to me. This is Gregory. Discourse should be adapted to the character of the hearers so as to be suited to the individual in respect in his respective needs. Hence, every counselor, that's my word, every counselor, in order to edify, must touch the hearts of his hearers by using one and the same doctrine. Not by using one and the same doctrine. Not by giving, I, I gotta read that over again. <laughs> Hence, every counselor, in order to edify, must touch the hearts of his hearers by using one and the same doctrine, but not by giving to all one and the same exhortation. There it is. Now, I don't know if that thrills you as it does me, but but let me explain why I'm so moved by that. <clears throat> Gregory assumes, he just takes it for granted, that biblical doctrine is relevant to soul care. That's where he starts. So doctrine of God, scripture, Christ, Holy Spirit, man, sin, salvation, church, uh, the last days. Gregory takes it as given information that doctrine really matters. Now, what he didn't say was that one size fits all. He said all using one and the same doctrine. That's true. But he didn't say one size fits all. And if you ever tried on clothes in a department store, uh, you know this to be true. So who's in front of me at any given time might drastically impact the tone, the timing, and the type of counsel that I offer. Who am I talking to? Am I talking to a saint, a sufferer, a sinner, some combination? Are they depressed, anxious, addicted, angry? Are they a child, a grown-up, a grown-up acting like a child? You see, one size doesn't fit all, but all doctrine matters to all persons. Again, Gregory's words, since I botched it so earlier, uh, so badly earlier, let me say it again. By using one and the same doctrine, but not by giving to all one and the same exhortation. (laughs) This is remarkable, especially if you spent any time as I have studying theology. It's all relevant, he's saying. Just unpack biblical doctrine and get to know people. Learn how they think, how they feel how they behave. Find out what their desires are, especially their corrupt ones. Help them to see the idols in their heart. Now, Gregory understood this. It's evident in his enumeration of the seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. These aren't just the seven deadly sins. You know what they are to me? They are the seven daily sins, or at least the seven daily temptations. Now, in the introduction to the brilliantly titled book, Killjoys, The Seven Deadly Sins, author Marshall Siegel observes, quote, undoubtedly there are sins beside these or other ways for naming them, but the seven deadly sins have been in some of the most promiscuous, some of the most promiscuous and prevalent in history. They form a brothel of mistresses who are all at once familiar and unfamiliar. They're familiar because every man or woman has tasted them, either for a one-night stand or in a lifelong affair. They've seduced the sinful in every culture, on every continent, through every generation. But somehow, they're also unfamiliar. 
Very few have looked closely enough at their faces to spot them in a crowd or study the havoc that they wreak. They disguise themselves, creep into seemingly harmless situations and conversations, embed themselves in our love and devotion, and then giggle when everything begins to unravel and explode. They are the cruelest and most dangerous Bond girls, capital B as in James Bond, each beautiful and breathing her own set of lies, outrageous lies, and yet they're strangely sweet and compelling. Now, I commend that book to you, Killjoys. It was uh, published a number of years ago by the faculty at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. You can also uh, counsel out of the seven deadly sins. In fact, there's there's nothing that uh, anyone could ever come your way with in a counseling session that wouldn't somehow be funneled into one of the seven deadlies. And Gregory would be quick to remind us that there's no biblical doctrine that doesn't somehow have piercing relevance and immediate implication application to the life of your struggling friend. Beginning with the life and suffering, death and burial, resurrection, ascension, and soon return of Jesus Christ, it's all relevant, especially as you stay close to the gospel, which is the matter of first importance, the matter of greatest relevance to counseling. And Gregory believed that. Now, were there more time, I'd share with you how Gregory the Great spoke of the counselor like the laver in the temple, meaning that when people come and confess their sin to you, like soap, you begin to pick up dirt. And after a while, you start to feel icky. No, that's, that's my word, not his. <laughs> okay, that's a brilliant observation. And it's a common problem. What do you do with that feeling? You'll have to read Gregory. Or read Gregory on the bounds that every counselor ought to place on self-disclosure. That is, understand that you are there to hear about them and their problems, not them about you and yours. Here, Gregory is simply reflecting the wisdom of Proverbs 25, 28, which warns, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. No place is more tempting to lose self-control with our mouths, and especially when we're seeking to help another individual. We want to identify. We want them to know that we get it, but it truly may be the last thing that they need to hear that is about all of our dirty laundry. Gregory, too, was a a master at uh, case sensitivity with counselees. Read him on that. <laughs> Finally, uh, Gregory understood that the care and the cure of souls, that counseling was really demanding labor. If you picture a counselor as a guy in you know, khaki slacks with a cardigan vest featuring light pastel colors, you're just not seeing the task like Gregory did. Gregory compared the role of a counselor to that of a wrestler. Uh, Tom Oden explains it this way. Quote, so deft must be the timing of the physician of souls that Gregory the Great compared it to the movement of a wrestler, dodging that blow, taking that unexpected action, and working on several ploys at the same time. The physician of souls must act like a wrestler to set up one defense without becoming vulnerable to another attack. Deftness, strength, agility, and flexibility are all marks of the wrestler. End quote. Well, Gregory was a man before his time, and I think that's why his work wears so well, uh, almost a thousand years later. You can download Gregory's entire work on counseling for 99 cents at amazon.com. It is a crime that more people don't spend time thinking about his work, especially pastors, especially counselors. So Gregory, Gregory the Great, he earned his name. 
Now, next time on the podcast, we'll take up the topic of the darkness before the dawn, soul care in the Middle Ages with a study of Francis of Assisi and also of another luminary, Thomas Aquinas. Until then, grace and peace.